Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're here in the luxurious uh, studios of Rome Church of Christ, which is essentially the same as Chris's office. Um, we're happy that you have uh, joined us this afternoon for part two of John Clayton's Does God Exist? lessons, which are entitled uh, the second part of Design in the Creation. Um, he introduces some interesting concepts and some interesting facts in this lesson that I don't know how anyone can conclude any other than the fact that, yes, indeed, our logic, our intuition, our uh, limited intelligence that we have um, suggests that these things that he reveals today, which only really, as he says, uh, scratch the surface, are part of a design which suggests that there is a designer uh, as well. And so he's going to review real quickly that we are in the process of looking at uh, how our um, our universe, how our world uh, was created, that it did indeed have a beginning, that there was a cause, that there, that, that cause was personal rather than non-personal. And so now he's into the fourth stage of cutting down through the layers of that um, and talking about design. So uh, he's going to uh, introduce some interesting concepts. I was not a math major uh, in college. Um, I um, on a scale from 1 to 10, I'm about a 4 or 5 in the area of math. Chris says he's a 2. But he's going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, a math concept that manifests itself in our world around us. And I think I've mentioned it briefly in a previous lesson. Um, he will introduce that just so you'll know when he's getting ready to talk about that. It has to do with the name Fibonacci. So, with that uh, little teaser, uh, we'll go ahead and start the lesson. to our fifth presentation in the video series, Does God Exist? I would like to mention to you that if you have not seen the first four videos in this series, I would encourage you to do that before you watch this one, because I think sometimes it's difficult to put things together if you don't know what has been said previously. We've tried to point out that we're talking about the question, the choice, as to whether the universe is a product of design or whether it is a product of chance. We've assumed reality. We have seen the evidence there was a beginning. We have seen the evidence the beginning was caused. And we're looking right now at the evidence of whether that cause was intelligence, purpose, design, or whether it was rote mechanistic chance. I've tried to point out to you that atheists have pretty well defined the choice here. Richard Dawkins' book, In a Universe of Blind Physical Forces, it's pretty clear that the atheist assumption has to be that there is no purpose, there is no intelligence, there is no design in the creation as a whole. And we've tried to indicate and show you that this is not just something presented in books like Richard Dawkins. 
but even at the high school and grade school level, children are indoctrinated with material along this line. And we're looking at examples of an intuitive nature. Intuitive meaning that we don't attach mathematics to it, we don't have any statistical analysis involved in it. We are just asking you to look at the situation and think about the logic of whether chance or intelligence is involved in what we are observing. I'd like to show you another intuitive example that's something that I experienced. It's kind of a, a fun story, and it's a demonstration, again, of the things that we're talking about, and it's a good scientific area for us to consider. Some years ago, I was invited to give a series of lectures in a place in Florida, and the, the family I was staying with while I did the lectures lived out in the country, and they had a, a nice house with a pond in the front yard. Well, when I pulled into their driveway, I noticed that his teenage sons were out sanding the pond. And as I got out of the car, I noticed that there was a pump going over on the edge, and they were pumping the pond dry, and the kids were getting the fish and putting them in horse troughs. And I asked the guy that I was going to be staying with, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're, we're cleaning out the pond. We've got to dig it deeper. We've got to get rid of the rough fish. We've got to uh, get rid of the algae. We're trying to improve it for ourselves. And, and uh, so uh, we, we're pretty well to the point of, of getting it completely dried out. After supper, we went down and looked at the pond, and the pond was crawling with turtles. I mean, there must have been a thousand turtles crawling around on the bottom of this uh, two or three acre pond. And I said to this guy, what are you gonna do with all those turtles? <laughs> he laughed, he said, well, he said, I called the county egg agent, he said, just leave them alone, they'll take care of themselves. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, they're going to dig down in the mud, they'll be okay. Well, that night we came home from the lectures around midnight, and as we pulled in the guy's driveway, there was a herd of turtles. Well, what do you call a whole bunch of turtles going one direction? I call them a herd. There was a herd of turtles going across the guy's driveway. I had to get out of the car and move some of the turtles off the road so he could get into his garage. Well, the next morning, we went down to see what was going on at the pond, and, and as we went down to the driveway, there was an interstate blasted through the yucca and the underbrush, and there were no turtles left in the pond. It was pretty obvious they had all gone down the interstate. So, you know, we're curious about this, so we followed the path. And uh, about a mile and a quarter down the road, we came to another pond. And the last of the turtles was just making their way into the pond. We went back and looked at the topographic map. If the turtles had gone any other direction than the way they went, it would have been eight miles to the nearest body of water. They went straight as an arrow to the nearest body of water. Question. How did they know it was there? Answer. Polarized light. All right, let's have a little physics discussion here. You're standing on the edge of a lake with a flat rock in your hand. You're going to throw the rock at the lake. Does it matter how you throw it? Well, yeah, I mean, surely you didn't have such a deprived childhood that you didn't skip rocks, right? If you throw the rock parallel to the water, the rock will skip. If you throw it vertical to the water, it will penetrate. So we all understand that this is the way a flat rock works. Essentially, light is a flat rock. 
Light is made up of little bundles of energy called photons. They're two-dimensional, which means they're infinitely flat. So they behave just like a flat rock. If you throw light vertically down on something, it will be absorbed. If you throw it at the right angle, it will be refracted. It will be bent. But if you throw it parallel to the surface, it will skip just like a flat rock. And we have a name for those light particles because since they're all flat, since they all vibrate in the same plane, we say they are polarized. Reflected light is mostly polarized. By the way, do you understand how your Polaroid sunglasses work? So your Polaroid sunglasses are made of a plastic that has the grain of the plastic pulled in a certain way, and light can only get through in the vertical plane of the Polaroid. If light is horizontal, it can't get through because the lines in the plastic block it. So you're wearing a Polaroid that has a vertical plane, the light is horizontal, that cuts the glare. That's how Polaroid sunglasses work. Did you know that turtles wear Polaroids? Well, at least some turtles do. So what does that mean? Well, it means that since their Polaroid is not like the sunglasses, since it's parallel to the ground, what that means is that the light reflecting off of something comes through loudly and clearly, but the light that is vertical does not make it through. So the reflected light from the pump is going to be brighter than any other area where light will be coming to the turtle. So as the turtle sits in his bottom of his pond, scanning the horizon, he's going to see light coming from the nearest body of water more brightly than any other place, and all he does is head for the light. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And by the way, you may recognize that in that illustration, that's why if you live on the ocean where there are sea turtles, they won't let you turn your porch lights on because the artificial lights can cause problems for the turtles that are looking for the reflected light. We had an incident in South Bend some years ago when it was raining at the time the turtles were heading for their water and the light reflecting off the Kmart parking lot was the brightest thing around and they ended up with a parking lot full of turtles. Polarized light is used by many, many animals in many different ways. Geese have Polaroids that are vertical. So what does that mean? It means that when they fly under the clouds, the clouds reflecting the light coming from the sun or the moon, when they fly under the clouds, they are able to see where the sun and the moon are because the vertically plain light coming through the clouds is brighter to them than the horizontal light coming from the other general surroundings. Virtually all animals have some use of polarized light. And, and the question has to be in this situation, how does this come about? Does this designing of the animal come about by a chance process? I realize that you can propose that. You can perhaps even suggest a model that would explain it. But there are so many illustrations of this that it becomes difficult to believe that that many chance processes could operate so continuously throughout nature. There's another type of design that is closely related to this, and I call it architectural design. And it's one of my favorite illustrations of design in the creation. The classic example for me is something called Fibonacci's ratio. 
Back in the 13th century, there was a mathematician by the name of Fibonacci that came up with something called the Fibonacci sequence. Like most mathematicians, he was looking for patterns in mathematics. And he noticed that if you arranged a sequence of numbers so that one number added to the next number gives the next number, you got a rather unusual pattern. 8 plus 13 is 21. 13 plus 21 is 34. 21 plus 34 is 55, and so forth. That's called a Fibonacci sequence. If you divide the smaller number by the bigger number in each case, you get a ratio of 0.6. And this has been used by architects, for example. It is sometimes called pleasing rectangles. If you make a rectangle that is using a Fibonacci set of numbers, like 8 by 13, it is aesthetically appealing. If you made it 8 by 15, it would not be aesthetically appealing. People wouldn't like it as well. So in Architecture 101, we know that using rectangles that use the Fibonacci ratio is something that has some advantages to it. Another interesting thing happens with this, however, that is truly remarkable, and this was another part of Fibonacci's work. If you cut a square off a Fibonacci rectangle, what you get is another Fibonacci rectangle. So in this diagram, if you took the rectangle that is lying horizontal and cut the square on the right off, what you would have is a Fibonacci rectangle, in this case, which is vertical, and it would have the same ratio as the bigger rectangle had. The 0.6 still holds for it. And if you cut a square off of that, you would get another rectangle, which is in the bottom left corner, and it has, again, the same kind of ratio. That's just kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? It's, it's kind of remarkable that that happens with those. And what Fibonacci did was that he connected the corners of the squares, as you can see in this diagram, and ended up with what is called a Fibonacci spiral. And we use Fibonacci spirals in architecture. When you see a spiral staircase, most of the time that will be using a Fibonacci spiral. When you see decorations, etchings on buildings, again, the Fibonacci spiral will be used because it is aesthetically appealing. Humans find it particularly beautiful. But you know what? Apparently the creator of the universe thinks it's pretty neat also. Because the Fibonacci spiral is used an incredible number of times in the natural world. When we look at a spiral galaxy, the arms of this galaxy fit the spiral curve perfectly. If you took this spiral and superimposed it on this galaxy, it would fit perfectly. If you take a look at a wave, the curl of the wave matches the Fibonacci spiral perfectly. If you watch water go down the drain, counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere, clockwise in the... You know what the first thing I did was when I got to Australia? <laughs> went in the men's room, filled the sink, pulled the plug. Sure enough, water went down the wrong way. Well, actually, that force is so weak, that won't work most of the time. But the fact of the matter is, however the water goes down the drain, it goes down in a Fibonacci spiral. And you say, well, all right, that's a gravitational something or other. No, 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 no. Because in weightlessness, the same thing happens. Subatomic particles curl with Fibonacci spirals in zero gravity. When you have buoyancy counteracting the gravitational forces, you still end up with the spiral structure. And it's interesting to realize that that's true in modern fossils as well as the ancient ones. And you can see it in the snail in your garden. 
When you look at the curl of the teeth of a groundhog, the teeth curl in the Fibonacci spiral. When you look at the curl of the teeth of a grizzly bear, it curls with a Fibonacci spiral. When you look at the beak of every bird there is, they all curl with a Fibonacci spiral. The horns of animals, whether you're dealing with modern animals or extinct animals, they curl with a Fibonacci spiral. The curl of the tail of a chameleon is in a Fibonacci spiral. The petals on a magnolia or sunflower seeds or pine cones all curl with a Fibonacci spiral. You see the tubers of pumpkins and potatoes and tomatoes. They all curl with a Fibonacci spiral. A fingerprint has Fibonacci spirals in it. Are you picking up a pattern here? Now, now it's important to understand here that there is no logical reason for this. The Fibonacci spiral is not stronger than other geometric shapes. Y you want strength then the hexagon is your stronger structure. The wings on supersonic aircraft are made of hexagons, set side to side, top to bottom. If you're dealing with open spacing, then a triangle is your best structure. There's no strength advantage. And give me an evolutionary explanation here. How are you more fit because your fingerprint curls with a Fibonacci spiral than you would be if it didn't? What's natural selection going to work on? Now you can see structures in nature like dissipative structures that use spiral releases. But look at the range of stuff we're talking about here. Everything from galaxies to pumpkins. Scientifically, there is no reason. And the number of examples is phenomenal. You look at the proboscis of a moth. It curls with a Fibonacci spiral. You look at the feather duster worms on the floor of the ocean. They rake plankton out of the seawater with fronds that are wound in a Fibonacci spiral. A spider web curls with a Fibonacci spiral. The little structures inside chlorotella algae curl with a Fibonacci spiral. The limbic structure of the human brain has Fibonacci spirals in it. I gave a presentation of this at MIT some years ago, and one of the doctors that was attending came up to me afterwards, and he said, did you know that there are 26 Fibonacci spirals in the human brain? And I said, no, I didn't know that. Tell me more. And he said, well, I'll send you a paper on it. So I got this 420-something page paper, <laughs> and I don't understand a lot of what's in the paper, but I can see the structures that he's talking about. The Fibonacci spiral is all over. The cochlea of the inner ear is wound with the Fibonacci spiral. The DNA helix is wound with a Fibonacci spiral. The umbilical cord of a baby is wound with a Fibonacci spiral. Do you know there's an outfit called the American Fibonacci Association that does nothing but look for Fibonacci spirals in nature and produce monographs and, and papers on this particular subject. These are people with way too much time on their hands, but the point is there are an incredible number of illustrations in nature. And there's no strength advantage. There's no evolutionary advantage. But maybe there's an explanation outside of science. You know, if you come to where I live in South Bend, Indiana, there's some things I could take you to see you might really enjoy seeing. The Gold Dome at Notre Dame is interesting to people. You might be interested in going to Lake Michigan and seeing Old Baldy. No, 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 it doesn't have anything to do with me. Old Baldy is a huge freshwater sand dune, one of the largest in the world. It's a fascinating thing to see. But one of the places I would take you is to the corner of Richdale in York in South Bend. There's a house here that is really an interesting house. The Hillmans used to live here. When I was a teacher at Riley High School in the South Bend, 
uh, I had nine, I think it was, of their kids in class. And I was in that house a few times. It's an incredible house. The north side, which you're looking at here, has little tiny windows made of a special kind of glass, unusually thick. On the other side, there are huge windows of a different kind of glass and a much thinner structure. And this is so well engineered, so well designed, that even though our winters get incredibly cold in South Bend, this house doesn't have much of a heating bill because it's so beautifully designed by the architect. The typical trademark of this architect is multiple roof lines, as you can see, looking at the picture. And after you oohed and awed at this place for a while, I would tell you, well, this was done by a very, very famous architect. His name was Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, because of the Hillman House, I got involved in looking for the structures that uh, would be Frank Lloyd Wright structures as I traveled around the world. One time I was in Arizona and I was in a limo going to the airport and we went by this place and I yelled at the limo driver. I was the only person on the limo. I said, hey, stop, wait a minute, I got to get a picture. And I jumped out, shot the picture, got back in. I, I'm going all over the place. You know, man, look at this, look at this. This looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, multiple roof lines, big windows this side, little windows the other side. He said, how'd you know that was Frank Lloyd Wright house? I said, I recognize the design. Not long after that, I was at the University of California at Berkeley. I was in a taxi cab going to the airport and went by this place. I jumped out, took the picture, got back in. I said, man, man, look at this. This looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Beautiful big windows on this side, little windows on the other side, multiple roof lines. The taxi driver said, how'd you know that? I said, I recognized the design. And then I was at University of Southern Florida in Lakeland. <laughs> Talk about getting your foot in your mouth. We're walking on the campus, and I'm going nuts, you know. Oh, man, look at this, look at this. You guys, you've got no shame. You borrowed a, one of our northern architects, Frank Lloyd Wright. Look at this, multiple roof lines, no windows this side, big windows the other. He said, well, didn't you see the sign? I said, what sign? He points, there's this huge sign. This entire university was designed by the famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. So I'm extracting my foot from my mouth again. And then falling waters. Oh, my. If you ever get near Pittsburgh, go see this place. It's privately run now, and you can go through it, you can see it. This beautifully designed house straddles the spring, cools within the summer, heats within the winter. They don't even need a furnace in the place. It's beautifully designed. Each room has been carefully, architecturally arranged, and, and in such a way that it, it utilizes everything that is there. And, and you won't see much of that anymore because of ecological concerns and land use concerns and so forth in this country. But see, I'm a human being. One property of a human being is to have some aesthetic value. There are things that I really like that have nothing to do with my survival. And so do you. There are some of you that can look at a painting on the wall and say Van Gogh or Picasso. Now, some of you can listen to three notes of music and say Beethoven or Alan Jackson. Every one of us has something we're good at that has nothing to do with our survival. It may be needlepoint, it may be fishing, it may be uh, uh, reading, it may be doing puzzles. We're human beings. One property of human beings is to have the capacity to appreciate aesthetics. A 
concept that is present in many religious systems is that man is created in the image of God. We have a likeness to God. Our properties that make us up, the things that make us human, are not our brain, but that part of us which enables us to have this kind of aesthetic value, to appreciate beauty, to devote massive amounts of energy and money and time to things that don't impact our survival, might even endanger it, don't promote us in any way, but which give us an appreciation of beauty. I suggest to you God in the creation many times has done things not because they were necessary, but because they gave incredible beauty. They gave incredible aesthetic value. Fibonacci's ratio, an example of architectural design. Our purpose is not to preclude scientific investigation, not to in any way minimize the investigation <coughs> of the things that we see, because much of what I have talked about in this presentation are things that have learned, been learned by scientific study. The question is, do we conclude in looking at this that there is design, that there is purpose, that there is wisdom in the creation? Or do we find evidence that this is easily explained in terms of mechanistic opportunistic chance, using Dawkins' statement as the basis of what we conclude? Obviously, I have to leave that on a personal level. But there's one more area that I want us to look at, and, and I, I do want to say to you that we have left this with just a few, very few, simple examples. We talked about instincts previously. We talked a little bit about reproduction previously. But there are so many other areas that can be concerned with and, and can be examined that we have a wealth of material on this. You can go to our website, dandydesigns.org, and you can read other intuitive examples. We have a series of books that you can borrow free of charge. Each of these books has over a hundred examples like the ones that I have shown you in these presentations. And you can contact us and borrow these if you wish. But in our next presentation, what we'd like to do is to apply a mathematical model to this discussion. What are the mathematics of this? This is called the soft anthropic principle. Simply a question not of how our philosophy affects it, but what happens mathematically when you approach the question of the complexity of the universe. We'll start that in our next presentation. <clears throat> okay, so did you learn anything? Um, with that presentation, our our world around us, uh, as we have said before, is just fascinating. And the more we learn about it, the more fascinating it gets. And and his point in bringing out some of these, as you obviously saw, is that the design that we see in our world around us is, is not the result of chance, circumstance, survival of the fittest, 
evolution as um, those who deny that God created all this would have us believe. Um, because there's, there is logic in our conclusions that we draw about the design, but it's not logical that that design is the result of blind chance um, or uh, a series of extremely fortunate events that pushed things in that direction, uh, which atheists uh, would, would have us believe. The question sheet that we have um, talks, uh, gives us on in uh, question two, it says, uh, what biblical comment is given to this notion that God uh, created and designed things uh, down to the most minute uh, detail? And he, uh, he lists for us Romans 1, 19. I'm going to read 16 through 20. Um, and, and just to let you know that what we're talking about here is our conclusions that we can come to simply by reading God's Word and looking around us. Romans 1.16 is a very uh, famous passage that uh, many of you, and I'm sure probably all of you, have heard before. Paul asserts to the uh, church at Rome here, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then he talks about uh, the wrath of God and what's going to occur to those who reject the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. I don't know if he's referring there to let us make man in our own image, but it's a strong possibility. I believe that God placed in us what he was talking about, among other things, this notion that we as human beings, as far as we know, are the only animals that are able to appreciate beauty, that get emotional when we hear certain types of music or we see certain types of things. Let me go on and I'll come, I'll come back to that. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they who deny it was made by God are without excuse. He lists several other uh, passages there. Psalms 19, uh, 1 through 6. Uh, he doesn't list Psalms 139, 7 through 14. 
um, Isaiah, the 40th chapter, and that famous chapter in Job, chapter 38, where after all that Job has gone through, <clears throat> he um, suffers that tremendously well, but then still questions God. And because of God's expectations of Job, uh, probably higher than he has of us, God lets him know that he is man and that God is creator. And he goes into an entire chapter or more yes, there, two or, three two or three chapters, where he um, tells Job what all he has done in the creation of this world. And he goes into explicit detail about all the little things that scientists over the centuries have looked at and found to be true. They weren't true at the time that Job was written. They weren't known at the time Job was written. But we have found that many of the things that, that uh, uh, are mentioned as quoting, quoted by the author there um, of God, that those things are indeed things that are occur in, this, in, in our world around us. And so, um, you know, we as individuals like to tout our uh, intelligence, especially over the other species, and maybe even over others around us. But when you, uh, when you get down to it, our intelligence, as we talked about last week, compared to God's, can't be compared to God's. I have a friend who, um, he was talking about this idea of, of appreciating music and, and art and things of this sort. And and uh, we, we sing in a chorus together. Um, and he said, uh, have you ever been to a ballet? And I said, no. And I said, I don't really think it would appeal to me. I said, I could go and appreciate the athletic ability and so forth. He says, I went to one <clears throat> not long ago. This is my first. And he said, I sat there and tears rolled down my cheeks. And I, I looked at him and I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, there was something in the way those people moved <clears throat> on stage in time with the music that was just so beautiful. Uh, that friend of mine is an atheist, uh, self-avowed atheist, by the way. Um, and we, I don't know that at that point we got into that discussion, but <clears throat> I may, since he has, uh, Clayton has talked about this, bring that point back up to him and say, what is it about us? How did we become that way? You know, why are we as human beings so unique in this, in this fashion? Do you want to comment on any of that? It's just odd that, that he would make a world that so diverse but so beautiful well, I mean, what's the purpose of it? And one of those questions he asks, um, he says something about uh, colorblind and uh, colorblind animals, but they're they're beautiful animals. Like, what what purpose does that serve outside of the fact that we enjoy it? It's just kind of another one of the ridiculous blessings, <laughs> a show of his generosity. Yeah, and I think that's in one of the questions um, that he that he mentions here. Um, it it is. And, and the examples that he gave here, we are in the fifth of 36 lessons, and he will give uh, multiple examples of these types of things. But right now, his, his purpose is to demonstrate that uh, there is design, and um, he gives these 
and I don't know where they fall in that range of most impressive or least impressive or somewhere in the middle, but his point is, is why, why, would, why would these things develop? When he talks about the Fibonacci spiral and the Fibonacci ratio, over and over and over again, you see it in nature. It has no mechanical benefit that scientists have been able to find out. It has no architectural benefit. He says other designs are infinitely more, um, more durable um, and, and, and stronger. Um, it, and it's on, the only reason that Clayton can come up with or that I or you might be able to come up with is man in his innate abilities that God has placed within him appreciates beauty, appreciates structure, appreciates design, and appreciates evidently a Fibonacci ratio. <laughs> and I don't think there's too many of us have, have ever heard of Fibonacci before this, but we see that uh, all around us. And it's just one of those things that <clears throat> I think is an extremely strong point to tell us that there are, are things in this world all around us that as Romans 1.19 says that are clearly seen by us as evidence of a creator that should we look the other direction should we intentionally try to discredit the fact that the things that we see with our eyes, our own tuition tells us that design was there, design was intended, and it took design for those things to occur. To seek other uh, reasons for this, survival of the fittest, or whatever, whatever evolutionary uh, principle or theory, I won't say principle, theory uh, you, you choose here, um, is you almost have to overlook the obvious. You have to look away from what would be the most natural conclusion uh, that you could come up with. Our galaxy, waves, water, subatomic particles, seashells, teeth, horns. I mean, it, it is just pervasive. It is all around us. And there's something about when you walk into a house or a building that has a spiral staircase, there's something appealing about that. And it's this innate desire uh, for that ratio. And I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that God, as he said, God likes that ratio as well. And so he designed uh, numerous thousands of examples of that, not only in current animals um, and, and situations, but those that we find in, in fossils um, as well. You might say it's almost his fingerprint, his signature. Yeah, speaking well, of fingerprints, yeah. it's in our fingerprints too, but it could be God's signature. Um, that when we see this in nature, it is God subtly or maybe overtly telling us, this is my creation, this is my handiwork. Um, and that's, I think, one of the Psalms uh, passages. Um, the heavens 
declare your handiwork. Um, it, it is, uh, to me, um, interesting that people will go to extremes. They will go to, they will contort themselves and their, their arguments um, in so many ways just so they do not have to admit, well, yeah, it looks like there was design. Because once they do that, then you have to say, okay, what or who designed it? And then you have to go seek answers there. And the Bible provides us um, with the depth that is unnecessary but is way over the top for the evidence that, that uh, the God of creation is the one who uh, created that design. Instinct, reproduction, mathematical approach. He's going to talk about uh, the soft anthropic approach next next week. Um, but I I think what is interesting is this this idea that uh, so that you may know. That's a phrase that comes up more than once in the Bible. So that you may know. And he's talking to us so that we may know God places evidence all around us that he created our universe. And it is up to us to uh, observe that and as it says in, in Romans 1, accept it. Look at it and accept it. It is obvious. We may know that he created the universe simply by looking at it. Um, and then all that he has done uh, for us as recounted in the, in the Bible, um, I mean, just, just confirms that, that peace over and over and, and over again. I wanted to read, um, uh, since we have a little bit of time left, Chris, did you have uh, any comment that you wanted to no. mention? Um, here are some of the other things before I go to those readings. Um, says number 10 on our list, question list, list some other areas like this Fibonacci ratio, Fibonacci ratio that could have similar arguments made for being a product of design. Color in caves and cave creatures. Unless it is uh, uh, blending in with the background so that they don't die from uh, some, some threat. Uh, colors, colors in space, texture differences in materials. Colors, and here's what Chris said, colors in animals and insects that are colorblind. These are all examples that do not offer survival value, this idea of survival of the fittest, and that's how these things have developed over hundreds and thousands and, and millions of years. But they provide great beauty for us as humans so that we may know that God created them. If evolution was true, you would think you would just find utilitarian stuff. Utilitarian stuff is very rarely pretty. It's useful, it does its job, but it's not made for beauty. And you just don't find that on, on in, in creation. You find things that are both useful and beautiful. It necessitates a designer. Um, when he was talking about polarized uh, light, there's a, a point in question three. It says, what is polarized light? Light that has a plane 
in which light waves vibrate and it's two-dimensional. We are three-dimensional. Uh, uh, our world is three-dimensional, but light, uh, polarized light, is two-dimensional. Reflecting or passing light through crystals with grains that block all but one plane allows the light to be a beam. A 3D movie, I never knew how this worked, a 3D movie has crystals in uh, which one lens is 90 degrees from the other. Those glasses that you put on, um, their, their uh, crystals are up and down here, and I guess horizontal over here, and so when um, this allows a separate image to be passed into each eye, giving the illusion of depth, the way our eyes work together, and I don't know who came up with <laughs> 3D stuff, but uh, it is fascinating. Um, we've had 3D movies for a long time, but they have taken 3D in recent years and just uh, just gone crazy with it. Um, I was at Disney World years ago um, and sat in one of those chairs in a, in a movie theater that moves around and gives you sensations and sprinkles water in your face and when there's a splash on the screen. And the realness that they are able to create that sensation of being right there in the middle of the action is, is just phenomenal. And I know even today um, they are even better with that. I have never put one of those goggles on. Yeah, the VR with, goggles. Yeah, I've never done that, um, and there's a good reason, <laughs> because I'd probably never take them off. Mm -hmm. I would spend all the rest of my days with that kind of um, visual stimulation uh, that, that can't be achieved by other than living uh, in this life. But all of the things that you can experience as if you were right there, and they're using that, that 3D uh, approach, I'm assuming, uh, assumption on my part. So we've read uh, Romans 119. I'm gonna flip over to Psalms 19, and read verses uh, one through six. Since we do have just a little bit of time left. Psalms 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It is rising, its rising is from one end of the heavens uh, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And so, uh, you know, just, just statements like that from the psalmist, inspired of God, to talk about the wonders of, of the universe, the depth and breadth and expanse of the universe that we have. Uh, Psalms 139, since we are in Psalms, verses 7 to 14. I think I picked those out a while ago. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there 
thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. <clears throat> this lesson talked a little bit about us, talked about the inner ear, talked about the brain, but it was in relation to the Fibonacci uh, spiral. Um, he will go on in other uh, lessons here and talk about how we are wonderfully made. The things that go on inside our bodies every second of every day that we simply take for granted. We do not think about those things because we don't have to. But if we took the time, if we went to medical school, and learned about all the fascinating things in our bodies, um, we couldn't help but be as impressed as the psalmist is here uh, with how we are fear fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know how uh, a person can go through um, a medical school curriculum and, and at least not be impressed with, with the human body. Um, and now with all the specialization that, that doctors have, they get down to, they take one part of the body and just uh, pull it apart in, in eight million different ways so that they know every little piece of that and how it functions and how it can be treated should it uh, get injured or damaged or, or have a problem. So uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, the other thing, uh, we, we won't read through Job 38, that's a rather extended uh, passage, but I'm going to go to Isaiah 40 and just read, I think I circled a, a, just a few verses here and there um, just a few minutes ago as I was looking back um, through this. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? No one. Those are rhetorical <laughs> questions. Except God. Who with, uh, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. It is amazing that 
um, we have such a division um, in our world today. We're experiencing all sorts of turmoil right now. Um, we have people who I'm assuming are noble and are honest on both sides of issues and see things so diametrically opposite or differently than the other person uh, sees them. This topic that we are talking about here is one of those issues, one of those topics. And you have, as he has said, um, in our schools and in our curricula uh, within our schools, efforts to not only remove religion from schools, and that's a whole nother issue um, uh, to begin with. You know, uh, our schools, uh, the source of religious, religious instruction or religious accommodation or, or whatever you might call it, um, or is that the responsibility of families uh, and the church? We could get into a, a big, long discussion about that, and I've changed my views uh, over time. At the same time, you cannot allow individuals to instruct a religion that is a godly, um, that is ungodly, that is not based on a Bible. Um, I'm trying to think of the word here. It's a social. Um, it's that. It's that which is promoted by uh, by most of those individuals out there. I'll think of it as soon as the camera is off. Um, but it's it, it's it's a belief in anything not supported by the Bible, and it it is a it's a corruptive um, influence that people are allowing into our schools as fact, as science. And it is something that uh, we've simply taken the Bible out of school and substituted another religion for it. It is a belief system, and people are now promoting it uh, in all aspects of science and, and literature, um, teaching concepts through literature that are in opposition to concepts in the Bible uh, and making it um, as, as if it is the, you'd be, have to be a fool not to believe in this way or you'd have to be, as we said a, a time or two ago, uh, a hater of some sort. Why, why would you hate this person? And our response is, I'm not. I don't have a phobia of them and I do not hate them. It's just that their lifestyle is not in keeping with that which uh, we find in the Bible and that which the Bible commands for us to live. Yet, we see not only in our schools, in society, uh, in, in, in numerous ways that uh, we are being uh, attacked. Our religion is being attacked. Our belief and our faith is being attacked. And I have said um, <clears throat> more than once through our, our other lessons that when the Bible talks about persecution, those people knew persecution. When it says uh, that, that persecution um, counted all joy, 
when various trials and temptations come your way. And they're talking about not just temptation to sin like everyone is, um, they're talking about persecution. They're talking about people taking your possessions because of your beliefs. They're talking about people um, torturing you because of your beliefs. They're talking about taking your life, ultimately, because of your beliefs. So when the Bible speaks, when the New Testament speaks about, about persecution and, 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 and uh, holding up under persecution and looking to God for strength in those times, um, they know persecution. They knew persecution. I contend we don't have any idea what it's like to be persecuted like they were. And it could be that as our current society continues to swing in this direction, away from God's Word and toward a, a more um, liberal, more um, man-centered uh, approach to things, then uh, it could be that we are going to better able to under, be better able to understand the types of persecution and the consequences of persecution and how that does test our faith when those times um, come our way. Some of us, I'm assuming, have. There are people around the world that are not as free as we are to ex enjoy and experience uh, our belief in the Bible and our ability to worship uh, free from oppression. But the more that the current trends continue, we are going to see that churches are going to come increasingly under more and more scrutiny and more and more pressure and more and more um, oppression. So uh, gird up your loins because um, I do believe, and I may not see it in my lifetime, but certainly in, in our children's lifetime and in our grandchildren's lifetime, things um, are heading in a bad direction. I hate to be a pessimist, I like to be an optimist, but everything that I can see, uh, it could be that, that uh, persecution is on the horizon, similar to and maybe like unto what they experienced in the Bible. And on that very enjoyable <laughs> and positive note, uh, we'll close uh, for today. Uh, we will be again uh, back here at 4 o'clock uh, next Wednesday afternoon, so join us if you will. You can find these on YouTube, uh, <clears throat> on our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts um, by calling 304-278-0763. If you have a friend that doesn't do technology at all, they can call that number and hear um, this series as well as our Sunday morning lessons, and we archive them right here as well. All right. We'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.